1992, the United Nations formally recognized climate change as a significant international issue, and one that would need to be addressed if peace and prosperity is to be furthered and maintained around the world. The United Nations Conference on Environment and Development took place that same year in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. The summit was meant to be a place where UN member states could discuss how to cooperate in a post-Cold War era, particularly on issues related to sustainability, which are too big for just one nation to handle, as all nations contribute to the associated problems, and no single or small alliance of countries would be capable of moving the ball too far down the field all by themselves. Also in 1992, Also in Rio, the Rio Earth Summit was held, with a focus on discussing things like lead toxicity in supply chains, poisonous and radioactive byproducts of manufacturing and energy production, alternative energy sources that might come to replace fossil fuels, public transportation systems that could be developed to reduce pollution, and the health problems associated with pollution, and issues related to the sourcing and production of potable water including the increasing usage of such water worldwide. At that latter meeting, UN member states voted to formally acknowledge that human activities contribute to climate change, that climate change is an issue of global concern, and that dangerous human interventions in the overall climate system should be avoided and prevented. It was also determined that agreements would need to be made to catalyze future collaborative effort on this bundle of subjects. So the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was passed, putting those acknowledgments in writing and paving the way for future action in a non-legally binding fashion. Basically, once the framework went into effect, all it really did was set up semi-regular meetings for discussing these topics in the future, and got the signatory countries on the record as having said that these issues are in fact real issues. The first of those meetings took place in Berlin, Germany, in 1995, and the discussion, called the First Conference of the Parties, or COP1 for short, resulted in the Berlin Mandate which laid out what policies and agreements might be included in a future, more binding agreement. Though the United States fought to keep any legal obligations or actual timetables from being included, and environmental activists criticized this mandate as being toothless and vague. That said, two years later, in 1997, at the COP3 meeting in Kyoto, Japan, This group of nations adopted the Kyoto Protocol, which was legally binding and required signatory nations to reduce emissions by an average of 5% below their 1990 levels, while also establishing a means of monitoring progress. Vitally, this protocol did not necessitate any developing countries to reduce their emissions, which at the time included countries like China and India, two of the biggest emitters of fossil fuels on the planet then, and even more so now, while also creating a carbon market that would allow countries to essentially trade emission credits with each other, 
So if they managed to bring their own emissions down and had more emissions that they could potentially make, according to this protocol, they could then trade those potential emissions, those carbon credits, to other countries that hadn't yet brought their own emissions down to their committed levels. This protocol would still need to be ratified by each involved country, though, and some major governments, like the United States, under a freshly elected George W. Bush, refused to do so, despite, or perhaps because of, the U.S.'s status as the world's largest emitter of CO2 at the time. 36 other countries did participate, however, and their first commitment period began in 2005 and lasted until 2012, all of them complying during that period, but many of them needing to utilize some of the flexibility mechanisms that were built into the protocol to reach their targets, despite the emission reductions that naturally occurred as a result of the decreased industrial output and travel during the 2007-2008 financial crisis. In the final years of that initial Kyoto Protocol period, Negotiations were ongoing for what the next phase of the process would look like. Leading up to the COP13 meeting in Bali, Indonesia, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released a new report indicating in no uncertain terms that there was abundant evidence that human activity is substantially contributing to climate change. And that report was used to generate enthusiasm for more aggressive goals for this next period's emissions cuts. The United States, though, didn't like a popular proposal to set emission cut targets for each country ahead of time, arguing that developing countries would need to do so as well, to which a delegate from Papua New Guinea responded, basically, get out of the way if you don't want to lead the international response on this issue. Ultimately, the United States backed down on that issue, and 37 countries signed up to have binding emissions targets, most of those countries, notably 28 of the 37, being members of the European Union. This second round of the Kyoto Protocol was meant to be formalized and signed into action at the COP15 meeting in Copenhagen in the late 2009, and things were looking good after an enthusiastic UN summit on climate change that had taken place three months previous, during which the then-Chinese president said his country would cut their emissions by a notable margin. The Japanese said they would cut theirs by 25%, and the then-US president said that the states was, quote, determined to act and lead, end quote, without giving a set number or any specific proposal. It was a major letdown for many then, when at the Copenhagen-based meeting, nothing emerged beyond a non-binding document that was, in UN legal speak, taken note of, rather than actually adopted. That document, the Copenhagen Accord, said that global temperatures should not increase beyond 2 degrees Celsius from their pre-industrial levels, though no higher than 1.5 degrees Celsius would be even better. But that's about it. Some countries said they would adhere to this accord, binding legalities or no, but others, like U.S. officials, said that the proposal did not go far enough, and therefore they would make their own pledges separate from the United Nations discussions on the matter. New data released by NASA indicating that 2000 to 2009 was the warmest decade ever recorded underpinned the next meeting. 
COP16, which took place in Cancun, Mexico. At that meeting, the involved countries committed to keeping the global average temperature increase below 2 degrees Celsius, and about 80 countries, including China, India, and the U.S., alongside the more reliable signatories, submitted their own emissions targets and agreed to mechanisms for measuring each country's follow-through with their chosen numbers. Despite that seeming progress, though, most analysts said that even if every country stuck to their goals perfectly, it wouldn't be enough to avoid hitting and surpassing that 2 degrees Celsius ceiling. And this agreement was considered to be a stopgap solution until something more solid and worthwhile could be developed as a true successor to the original Kyoto Protocols. COP17 in Durban, South Africa, led to the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, which was a plan to actually sit down and write out a blueprint for what that successor climate plan might look like. And after a couple of meetings, during which nothing much was accomplished, at COP21 in Paris, at the tail end of 2015, the Paris Agreement was signed off on by 196 countries, an agreement that would require essentially every country on the planet to set emission reduction goals that they chose themselves, and without any enforcement mechanism to keep tabs on their progress or to punish them if they fail to live up to their own set goals. Part of why this agreement was so popular, then, is that it was very easy to implement and agree to, because it didn't really come with any downsides. Despite that broad acceptance, though, a recently elected President Donald Trump withdrew the United States from the agreement in 2017, something that was widely criticized by some because of what it represented in terms of the U.S. not going along with everyone else on the planet in committing to a largely symbolic climate-related program. But it was celebrated by others, some of whom don't believe or claim not to believe that humans have anything to do with climate change, and some of whom thought the agreement was kind of pointless and got in the way of actual serious actions that the U.S. and the world should be taking instead. Another meeting, the UN Climate Action Summit, took place in New York in late 2019 on the heels of a new report from the IPCC that said, basically, even a 1.5 degree Celsius increase to average global temperatures would be devastating on multiple levels, and that we could hit that number if current trends continue as early as 2030. This meeting was in part, then, a chance for signatories to revamp their self-assigned climate goals, if they chose to do so, based on this new data, and to ask those countries to do what they can to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030, and to aim for carbon neutrality by 2050. Leaders from most of the highest-emitting countries did not attend this summit, and that set the tone for the COP25 meeting in Madrid, where negotiators were unable to reach an agreement on the final rules for a global carbon market, or on how to help developing countries that suffer from climate change-related events, like unseasonable hurricanes or once-in-a-century floods. The COP26 meeting, scheduled for November of 2020, has been postponed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, at this meeting, member countries were expected to present new climate goals and accomplishments, though some nations, like the United States, are expected to keep themselves at arm's length from these proceedings going forward. 
and it's expected that disruption from the pandemic will make gauging progress difficult, as emissions have dropped precipitously while businesses and transportation industries have been shut down, and everyone has been stuck at home and staying off the streets. But those numbers could shoot back up in the near future, and in some cases, have already returned to something near their normal levels, even with a great deal of infrastructure still offline, and a great many norms still disrupted. What I'd like to talk about today are climate pledges, and specifically a recent pledge made by China that, if fulfilled, could have serious and, by many measures, seriously positive outcomes for their own prospects, but also, arguably, for those of the world. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the BBC, and it's entitled Climate Change. China aims for carbon neutrality by 2060. As I mentioned in the intro, the next UN-organized meeting for climate-related issues, the COP26 meeting, was scheduled for late 2020, but has been postponed until sometime in 2021 because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. The more general topic, UN General Assembly meeting, did take place in New York in September 2020, but the majority of delegates attended virtually, using what amounts to fancy Zoom calls to present speeches to each other and to the press on topics ranging from the aforementioned pandemic and the international response to it, to the alleged intent and near-future ability to produce nuclear weapons in Iran, to the diplomatic, economic, and thus far militarily cold conflict between the United States and China. One significant surprise tucked amidst the at-times tumultuous discussions and arguments about these topics, though, was included in China's presentation to the other delegates. President Xi Jinping announced that China would aim to reach peak CO2 emissions before 2030 and would aim to achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. This announcement was presented alongside a call for the world to commit to a global green recovery as the coronavirus threat begins to subside, and was a bit of a surprise, as Chinese officials had previously said they were aiming for 2030 as a rough date for peak emissions, but hadn't committed to anything solid or any longer-term climate-related goals. This would arguably be a laudable announcement by any nation, but it's particularly important coming from China, which is, by some measures, the world's largest economy, by all measures, the world's most populous nation, and is responsible for about 28% of total global emissions, a figure that has shot up dramatically in the past few decades, and which has seemed primed to continue growing unabated as the country's economy continues to grow and expand its reach. The context of this statement is important, as it helps explain why President Xi might make this kind of announcement at this moment. First and foremost is that there is a significant shift occurring in real time in average climate-related activity around the world. The prevailing wisdom that we will soon see the effects of climate change and that if we aren't careful, we won't be able to dodge the incoming bullet of these effects has largely gone out the window replaced by sobering data that indicates these changes and effects are already here. 
already disrupting everything from hurricane intensity and season duration to flooding, temperatures, typhoons, wildfires, and tornadoes. And those shifts are likely to only get worse from here on out. In other words, we have data that says we are in the midst of human-amplified climate change, not awaiting it. And what happens next will determine how livable or unlivable some areas become for human beings, how dramatically our norms shift, and what kind of quality of life most of us can expect in the coming decades. Thus, part of the thinking behind this announcement was almost certainly predicated on this data, this reality, and the recognition within the Chinese leadership that they would suffer just as much as anyone else if they don't get their house in order. But if they act now, they might help prevent some of the worst possible outcomes for themselves and for everyone else. Also important here is the political calculus involved in any announcement of this kind from any government. Traditionally, the United States has led many of the largest global efforts through international entities like the United Nations, but under its current leadership, the U.S. has pulled back from traditional partnerships and international organizations, which at times has ceded those leadership positions to others who might want to step in and take the baton. In this case, that means China has the chance to demonstrate leadership and capability in a space that is likely to only become more important in the coming years, and this may net them additional soft power around the world as they show that they are something of a moral compass when it comes to this particular cause, and as they help other countries follow their lead and make it through. This also serves as an opportunity to imply that the United States is in decline. The U.S. cannot even get their act together enough to lead on this vitally important issue. So we, China, will reluctantly stand up and do what is right and help everyone else do the same. There's an opportunity here, too, for ambitious countries to gain a huge advantage when it comes to next-step economic growth. By making this bold claim, and by acting upon it, China can cement their existing lead when it comes to the production of green energy generation technologies, like solar panels and dam construction and wind turbines, while also bolstering their local businesses through direct government investment. In practice, that basically means the Chinese government announces their intent to spend a huge chunk of money on these technologies in the coming years for local use, and that enriches China-based companies that make said technologies, allowing them to expand and do research and development work and grow and iterate faster than their peers in other countries. This has a double whammy effect, allowing China to replace their now antique infrastructure faster than other countries are capable of doing, earning them the economic energy and environmental benefits of doing so ahead of most other countries. But it also positions their local green industry to be a force worldwide capable of outcompeting their international peers because they've already sharpened their tools and their pocketbooks in the world's most populous and, by some metrics, biggest economy. One nice side benefit of this move is that the European Union recently asked China to do more and make more ambitious plans when it comes to their emissions footprint. The EU is expected to be an increasingly important global market for everyone, but especially a country like China that has recently seen its largest trading partner, the United States, become belligerent and unreliable in this regard. By making this announcement, then, 
China is also demonstrating to the EU that it's willing to play ball, listen to their concerns, and be a responsible global player according to standards that they care about, some standards they care about anyway. And that provides EU lawmakers the justification to do more business with China, while also incentivizing them to make more generous accommodations to Chinese requests and exceptions in the future. Now, all that said, there are legitimate questions being asked about whether China is actually capable of doing what they're claiming they will do. Thinking at a human scale, 2030 and 2060 seem ages away from late 2020, which is when I'm recording this. But on a national scale, this kind of pivot at that pace would be extraordinary. At the scale a country, any country, operates, there's a huge amount of momentum behind anything you might do. Plans are made many years or even decades in advance as a result, and the amount of work required to make small changes, like changing the brand of paperclips used by a single office within the government, can sometimes take a great deal of time and effort, not to mention paperwork. Fundamentally changing how a whole country generates electricity, powers its cars, builds things, deals with pollution and waste, that's a monumental task made up of countless subtasks. Because of China's staggering scale, that monumental task is even more monumental. So the idea of hitting their highest ever level of carbon emissions in less than a decade before sloping downward, and then hitting carbon neutrality a few decades after that, is an effort that would be astounding and wonderful if it could be accomplished. But many analysts are calling such goals a pipe dream, and perhaps even just a marketing tool, because of how unlikely it sounds, but also, in some cases, because of the specific terminology they used in their announcement. The pipe dream argument is partly based on China's behavior thus far, which includes very recent 2019-era construction of more coal power plants, with yet more currently under construction and not yet finished. These are power plants that typically need to operate for decades to pay for themselves, and which burn a fossil fuel that is by some metrics the most polluting and emissions-heavy of all possible options. In 2019, coal accounted for about 58% of China's total energy consumption and 66% of its electricity generation. And though China has taken some significant steps to increase their sustainable power generation capabilities, most incentives still favor coal, and their capacity for coal power still seriously outweighs all other options. So any change would require a massive loss on some of their infrastructure, and a significant shift in the laws surrounding their power market to favor wind, solar, and hydro rather than power generated by burning fossil fuels, as is currently the case. Nuclear power is considered to be important to this transition for most countries, either as an ongoing source of reliable, continuous power to pair with the often less continuous, less reliable sources that are more environmentally friendly, or as a stopgap between fossil fuels and eventual 100% greener sources. But the 2011 Fukushima power plant disaster in Japan led to a series of policy changes in China that made building new nuclear power plants more expensive and also triggered a shift in Chinese public perception of nuclear power in a truly negative direction. China currently has 48 operational nuclear power plants and another dozen under construction, 
but their efforts in this space have been relatively ponderous compared to other efforts, and though they could recalibrate public perception and their regulations to make nuclear power less expensive than fossil fuel-generated power, it would no doubt take quite a bit of doing across economic, social, and legal spheres. As I mentioned, there is also concern about the terminology they used, in particular, carbon neutrality, which can be a bit vague, as it implies that an entity either puts no additional CO2 into the atmosphere, or that they counteract any CO2 that they do put into the atmosphere with something that pulls it out, usually some kind of carbon drawdown method. A drawdown might be accomplished via crushed minerals that naturally absorb CO2 from the air, scaled-up tree planting, which accomplishes the same using photosynthesis-based processes that trees naturally perform, or through the use of emerging technologies that suck up CO2 through giant air-conditioning-looking devices that then tuck that CO2 into underground chambers, or compresses it into diamonds, or chunks it into carbon-based bricks. Those latter technologies are mostly, at this point, either theoretical or not happening on a suitable scale, which makes them an unreliable basis for this sort of plan. Though a lot of plans made by governments and corporations presenting these sorts of promises today are predicated on hand-wavy, don't-worry-it'll-work-I-promise types of guarantees. So that unto itself is a bit worrying, because these technologies, though definitely promising, may never scale up the way that we need them to scale up, or may come with their own downsides that we haven't seen yet because these solutions have not been tried on scale as of yet. Likewise, planting trees to soak up CO2 is great, but there's only so much space for this type of planting, and those trees eventually release their CO2 back into the atmosphere as they die, as they rot, as they burn, and they stop drawing CO2 down from the atmosphere at some point in their development, while also taking quite a while to reach their full drawdown potential. This is a very slow and long-term type of solution, none of which implies that these approaches could not work, either in isolation or as part of a larger, multifaceted plan to counter a country's worth of CO2 output, but we also don't know that any of them can or will work. And it's unlikely, at this point, that any existing near-future option that we know about will prove to be a silver bullet in this regard all by itself. There are also a great many carbon neutrality plans and claims that are predicated on merely shifting carbon responsibility elsewhere, rather than completely reducing or negating that output. When a country outsources its production of concrete to another country, for instance, this moves a huge amount of CO2 generation from one place to another, but it doesn't actually change who's responsible for that output. That new location is still on the same planet, so it goes into the same atmosphere. Some existing plans seem to be predicated, at least in part, on these sorts of shenanigans, shuffling the hazardous, polluting, and undesirable activities from often wealthy countries to often less wealthy countries, and that, in turn, allows those wealthier countries to claim progress, when in reality, all they've done is move the numbers from one country's tab to that of another. What we don't know at this point is how much of China's plans will revolve around internal recalibration to reduce overall emissions, 
internal drawdown and removal of what they do emit, and genuine reductions in environmental footprint, and how much will involve shifting responsibility, and fudging numbers, and economic manipulation that allows them to claim a head start or a victory, when in reality little has changed, except for how their emissions are measured and perceived. Some estimates from sustainability and economics experts say that it could cost China somewhere in the neighborhood of $5.5 trillion to do this transition correctly, which in some ways sounds like an absolute bargain for what they'd get in return, but even in an authoritarian state, it can sometimes be tricky to justify huge expenditures that also create headaches for powerful people up and down the leadership chart, and which could put the 3.5 million people who work in the coal industry alone out of work. And that's just one of the many direct impacts of this shift, which would no doubt be joined by a great many negative secondary and tertiary knock-on effects along the way. It's expected that the Chinese government will provide more details in their official submission to the United Nations later this year, or in their updated five-year plan, which is set to be released in 2020. Worth noting here is that China did manage to completely revise and evolve their entire economy over the course of about 40 years, so it's not impossible that they could do the same with this over the course of the next 40. And if they do manage to do so, it would be quite a coup for them in terms of international perception, their relationships with other nations, and the increasingly common narrative that they are the rising superpower, while the United States is an elderly country in decline. One more thing worth noting here, I think, is that China is not alone in making these sorts of declarations. Many government entities are dragging their feet on committing to anything too specific, at least in contexts in which they might be held to their word at some point. But we're seeing more corporate entities make this sort of move as well, which, based on the emissions and other environmental impacts made by some of these companies, is a fairly heartening trend. Tech giant Google, for instance, recently announced that they'll be carbon neutral by 2030, that neutrality covering all online activity by Google and their affiliates, alongside their electricity usage and employee travel-related emissions. Notably, they've been mostly carbon neutral since 2017, and announced that as of 2020, they've managed to offset all emissions that they've ever generated over the course of their company's existence. Facebook has said that they will also aim for carbon neutrality by 2030 in their direct operations, but also all along the value chain of workers and suppliers they use, including that of their users. Also in 2020, Apple announced that they would be carbon neutral by 2030, that effort encompassing their entire supply chain and the life cycle of all their products, including the electricity used by all of their products. And Microsoft also said that they would achieve neutrality by 2030, adding that they would reach neutrality for their whole existence, like Google managed to achieve in 2020, by 2050. And Microsoft has been around for about 23 years longer than Google, so it makes sense that their effort to accomplish that scale of offset might take a bit longer. All of which sounds pretty wonderful, and almost certainly is, but the same caveats apply to companies as to countries. There's a lot of vagueness in these sorts of statements, and a lot of opportunity to blur and shuffle the numbers in such a way that a pretty good thing sounds astounding in the press releases. And until we have more details 
on all of these claims and evidence of the efforts as they happen, it's probably prudent to maintain some skepticism alongside the, I think, justified optimism. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, by the theoretical astrophysicist Katie Mack. The title of this book captures the topic pretty well. It is a book about the universe, and it takes you through a collection of ways that the universe might end, based on what we know about the universe currently. And for such a dark topic, the book is actually very upbeat and funny. These complex topics are presented in a very accessible way. And if you've ever wondered about the big picture concepts that underpin astrophysics, this would be a very good introduction to those concepts, despite the fact that it focuses on where they eventually lead the end of the universe. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking, by Katie Mack. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript to this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.